Matthew chapter 21, verse 33. We'll read all the way through verse 46, the parable of the husbandman. Hear another parable. There was a certain householder which planted a vineyard and hedged it round about and digged a winepress in it and built a tower and let it out to husbandmen and went into a far country. When the time of the fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the husbandmen that they might receive the fruits of it. And the husbandmen took his servants and beat one and killed another and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants more than the first and they did unto them likewise. But last of all, he sent unto them his son, saying, They will reverence my son. But when the husbandmen saw the son, they said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him. Let us seize on his inheritance. And they called him and cast him out of the vineyard and slew him. When the Lord, therefore, of the vineyard comes, what will he do unto those husbandmen? Well, he said unto him, Well, he will miserably destroy those wicked men, and will let out his vineyard unto other husbandmen, which shall render him the fruits in their seasons. Jesus said unto them, Did you never read in the Scriptures the stone which the builders rejected, the same has become the head of the corner? This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore say I unto you, The kingdom of God shall be taken from you, and given to a nation, bringing forth the fruits thereof. And whosoever shall fall on this stone shall be broken, but on whomsoever it shall fall, it will grind him to powder. And when the chief priests and Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he spoke of them. But when they sought to lay hands on him, they feared the multitude, because they took him for a prophet. Thank you, Lord, for this word. May we be edified by your wonderful words of grace. In Jesus' name, amen. And so here we see that Jesus introduces another parable to his hearers, one in a series of three parables. And these parables are all directed toward the religious leaders. If you look back at verse 23, you'll see that Jesus was teaching in the temple when he was approached by these men. These men questioned his authority. Jesus refused to answer that question. Remember we talked about that this morning. He wasn't going to tell them where his authority came from. But they already knew what he claimed. They already knew that he claimed to come from the Father. They already knew that he claimed to be the Son of God. But the point is, Jesus wasn't going to play their games any longer. Jesus wasn't going to cast his pearls before the swine. And so here Jesus speaks to them in three parables. We we see the first one in verses 28 through 32. We looked at that this morning. The the religious leaders uh, were like the son that said, Sure. I'll do my father's will, but then when the father wasn't looking, they turned and went away and they didn't do it. And he was telling them here that they were liars. He was telling them that they were hypocrites. And in verse 33, he begins another parable. And we're going to look at that tonight. In chapter 22, verses 1 through 14, he gives a final parable telling them that they're going to be shut out of the kingdom of heaven because they have refused the proper invitation to enter into it. Now, these are very serious indictments Jesus is making against these people. He told them back in chapter 21, uh, verse 31, that prostitutes were going to enter the kingdom of heaven before they did. 
And so both the parable of the husbandman that we're looking at here and the wedding banquet that we'll look at next, they serve as sermons that would have enraged these religious leaders when, when they heard them. And when they hear these things, they take it so personally, and they should, that they're not going to rest until they kill Jesus for what He's done. And by the way, all these sermons come on the heels of Jesus cleansing the temple, which also enraged the religious leaders. For years and years, Jesus said, keep it quiet, keep it quiet, keep it quiet. Don't tell anyone, don't tell anyone, don't tell anyone. But now His hour has come, and He is enraging them. He's not holding back anything. He started by cleansing the temple. They got so angry at Him. And now He is preaching sermons to them publicly, much like John the Baptist did to Herod and Herodias. And they are going to be so angry by the end of this, they want to lay hands on on Him and kill Him. But when we look at the parable He gives here, it's a pretty disturbing story. It really is. It involves this man who owned a vineyard and... Common for Palestine, there were vineyards all over the place. The hillsides there were covered with with vineyards. It was a good way to make a living. You could make a good living with a good vineyard. And this one really seems to be pretty nice if you look at the text. It had a wall surrounding it which would have protected it from thieves, protected it from animals. It had a wine press. Sometimes these wine presses were very elaborate. They were cut out of bedrock. Grapes were squeezed in an upper basin. And the juice flowed down a trough to a lower basin where it was then poured into wine skins or some type of canister. And so this is a very nice outfit. The owner, if you look here, even had a tower in his vineyard which would have served for a few purposes. Number one, to look as a lookout post to see if anybody was coming to to maybe steal things from him. But also, it was a shelter for the laborers. If it started raining or the wind got too bad, they could run into this uh, tower. And, And as well, it was also a place they could store their supplies. So here's a man who is serious about his business. Here's a man who has not just a vineyard, but man, he has put a lot of work into this vineyard, a lot of time, a lot of effort. This is a nice place. And he decides that in order to make money, he's just going to rent it out. He's going to allow a group of men to use the vineyard. They grow grapes, they make money, and then they'll just pay him a portion of what they make. Um, He won't really have to do anything. A very sensible, wise way to make money. And he has to travel anyway. The parable tells us he has to go a long way. So it would just be sitting there doing nothing. So he says, hey, I'll, I'll use it and I'll make some money. And so you see a degree of trust that this vineyard owner has with these people. Well, he decides then that it's time to collect his profit. After some time passes, he knew when harvest time was. He knew how it worked. He knew there'd been some money made already. So he sends one of his servants to get the money. Now, Mark tells this story. He gives us a little more details than than Matthew does. Matthew kind of just condenses it, just like he did with the cursing of the fig tree. But when you put Matthew and Mark together, you really get the whole picture. And this is what we see. The man sends a servant to collect money, but instead of paying the servant, these husbandmen beat him and say, get out of here, you know, don't come back. And they send him away with nothing. And so the owner of the vineyard says, well, that was rude. And then he sends another servant and they do the same thing to him. And then he sends a third and a group of men and they just keep stoning these men, doing evil things to him. And so finally he gets to the point where he says, I'm just going to send my son down there. Surely they fear me enough that they're not going to do anything to my son. Mark tells us that it was his only son. His only son. 
But when the son got there, we see that there was no pity on the son at all. In fact, they thought, well, hey, look, this is the heir to the vineyard. There's no other son. We know the guy. Why don't we just kill him? And then there'll be no one to inherit this vineyard. We'll just kind of squat here and this will be ours. We'll keep the prophets. We'll keep the land. The old man's gone. He's way away in a far country. So they catch the son and they kill the son and they carry his body outside of the vineyard and they dispose of it. And after telling that story, Jesus then asked a question, much like he did with the story with the two sons in the previous parable. He says, what do you think the owner of that vineyard is going to do? Now, obviously, you look at this guy. This owner is a man of power. He's rich. He owns this vineyard. He's got servants that go do what he tells them to do. Here's a man who has the money to travel abroad. So this is not a man with nothing. This is a man with connections. This is a man who has power. That's what the context here implies. He says, what is he going to do, you think, to these men when he gets his hand on them? These men who have stolen from him. These men who have dishonored him. These men who killed his only son. What do you think they'll do to him? This is a horrific crime. Really like something you might read, see on Dateline. A story that's so disturbing. It makes you wonder, is there any hope for humanity? These guys are wicked. And I think anybody who heard this story would have got angry. And he said, boy, those are some real awful people. A senseless crime, especially brutal crime. These men showed no regard for human life at all. And I think that Jesus gave this story such a soul-stirring element because of what it represents, and we'll see that in a minute, but because he does want them to get angry. He wants them to understand how serious this is. And the men answer. We see that in verse 41. They say two things. They say, well, first of all, the owner is going to kill those men. And then second of all, he's going to give the vineyard to somebody else, somebody who will respect him. And that's a good answer. I think the religious leaders are right. They were probably caught up in this story. Jesus shared this parable. And they thought, boy, that was interesting. Now, Jesus explains the parable. And this is where they get upset. And and he goes all the way back to the Old Testament to start explaining this to them. And he rebukes them. He says, look, you guys don't even know what the Bible says. He says, haven't you ever read the Scriptures? Now, they're supposed to be the teachers of the Scriptures. They're supposed to be the ones who know it. He says, do you even read them? By the way, he asked them the same thing back in verse 16. One of the reasons the religious leaders missed Jesus is because they didn't know what the Bible said about it. They didn't really know it. They claimed the Word of God was their God. But the Word of God was not their God at all. And so Jesus then quotes Psalm 118, verse 22. He said, The stone which the builders rejected has become the head of the corner. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Now here's an interesting thing to think about. Psalm 118 is the same psalm that the multitude was singing when he entered Jerusalem. Remember that? It's the same exact psalm. So why does that matter? It matters because of this. If the religious leaders hadn't read those scriptures, it would seem really odd because even the common people knew those scriptures. 
The people who were run of the mill that was just walking down the road, they knew what Psalm 118 said. The little children knew what Psalm 18 said. Remember back in the temple when it went after Jesus cleansed it, the little kids started singing. What were they singing? They were singing Psalm 118. And so Jesus is saying, hey, these people who were just uh, carpenters and fishermen and, and, and basically the lower class of society, they know what Psalm 118 says. These little children, they know what Psalm 118 says. Do you not know what Psalm 118 says? You're the teachers. You're the leaders. And so what we see here is this willful ignorance among the religious leaders. They don't see what the Bible says about Jesus because Jesus isn't the type of Savior they want. If they had measured Christ by Scripture, they would have received Him as Savior. Because He was born of a virgin, as Scripture said. He was born in Bethlehem, as Scripture said. He had to flee to Egypt for protection, like Scripture said. Uh, he, he had healed the sick, like Scripture said. He taught with great, great wisdom, like Scripture said. And I go on and on and on. But I think you get the point. There's so much that, that He fulfilled. Their ignorance was not based on reason. Their ignorance was not based on logic. It was based on emotion and personal preference. They didn't like Jesus and they didn't like Him for one simple reason. He was so unlike them. So unlike them. And then Jesus says, He says, you know, I'm, I'm the cornerstone. The one that was prophesied. Now, the Old Testament talked about this. I've already mentioned Psalm 118, 22, but Isaiah did as well. In Isaiah 28, 16, Behold, I lay in Zion for a foundation a stone, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. He that believes shall not make haste. Zechariah 10, 4 says, Out of him comes forth the corner. The New Testament picked up on that. In Acts 4.11, Peter said on a sermon, This is the stone which was set at naught of you builders, which has become the head of the corner. Paul said in Ephesians 2.20, Jesus Christ Himself being the chief cornerstone. Again, Peter in 1 Peter 2.7 says, Unto you therefore which believe, He is precious, but unto them which be disobedient, the stone which the builders disallowed, the same has become the head of the corner. Again, 1 Peter 2.6, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, present, uh, elect and precious. This is not an isolated theme is the point. I quoted all those to you just to show you this is not isolated. All over the Bible, it says that Jesus will be the cornerstone. Now, what was that analogy? Because it's hard for us. What is a cornerstone? Well, it was a stone on which two walls sat. It was important because if that stone was removed, then the building would collapse. But if you go back and you look at... um, the way they built in those days, there's something else that was important about it. That stone was a reference for every other stone that was laid. That stone was laid first. It's the chief stone. And it serves to basically keep the building plumb. And so in that regard, it determined the position of the entire structure. If the cornerstone was off, the whole building was off. If the cornerstone was removed, two walls would collapse. And so obviously when you're doing a building, a cornerstone was a very important part. In fact, whenever they would choose a cornerstone, you know, they didn't have all the equipment like we have today, they would inspect and usually reject many, many stones. 
They would have a pile there and they would look for the exact right stone. They would have to inspect it to make sure that it was going to fit for this building. And the idea here is the religious leaders, they came to Jesus and they inspected Him. They looked at Him. And even though He was the chief cornerstone, what they did was they grabbed hold of Him and they threw Him to the side and said, No, that's not it. And so the only cornerstone, the only way to build this building called the church, this, this whatever you want to call it, this, this beautiful, beautiful spiritual building, the only way to build this is Christ. Being laid as the chief cornerstone first, but when they see it, they say, nah, and they just toss it to the side. They reject Him. And in doing that, they reject the perfect cornerstone. They cast Him into a heap of rubble like He's useless. You see, the religious leaders, they were the builders of the nation. And they showed here that not only were they not very good Bible students, but they were also not very good builders. They rejected the only stone that could be the proper foundation for the people. And so again, they're showing themselves incapable of doing the work of God. They cannot, these leaders will be replaced with fishermen. These leaders will be replaced with tax collectors. These leaders who had been trained were absolutely useless in the work of God. And they would be replaced by people who seemed to know nothing. And Christ tells them, basically, I'm going to take your building license away. I'm going to revoke your building license. Look at, look at verse 43. Therefore I say unto you, the kingdom of God shall be taken from you and given to a nation, bringing forth the fruits thereof. The kingdom is going to be taken from these religious leaders, the high priests, the chief priests, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the scribes. These people are going to become obsolete. When you get all through the book of Acts, you're going to see that these guys, by the time you get to the end of the New Testament, where are they? They used to be everything in the Jewish religion. And now they're just, they're just going to be nothing. Unnecessary. Their job was considered among the most noble of any job in Judaism. Now they don't even have a job. It's going to be given to someone else. Look, look at verse 43. Given to a nation that will bring forth fruit. Remember, Israel is a fig tree back in chapter 21, verse 19. It was cursed. Why? It didn't have fruit. And so God's going to give the task of building the kingdom to a new nation. The Gentiles is who He's going to give it to. And then Jesus said, I will build my church. He will build His church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. But now He says, I'm not going to do it through Israel though. 1 Peter 2.9 says there's going to be a new royal priesthood. There's going to be a new holy nation. And that holy nation will be those who are saved. Mainly Gentile nations. Some Jews, but Gentiles and Jews lumped together in one nation. Not defined by geography, but defined by faith in the cornerstone. Faith in Jesus Christ. Now look what happens next. The religious leaders, they, they realize what Jesus is saying. Look at verse 44. He says something harsh. And whosoever shall fall on this stone shall be broken, but on whomsoever it shall fall, it will grind him to powder. The Messiah here, continuing that idea of him being a stone, there's another analogy given. And it comes from Daniel. In Daniel chapter 2, Daniel describes an image that's big and scary. 
an image that represents world governments who have set themselves up in opposition to God. There's a head of gold. There's a a breast and arms of silver, a, a belly and thighs of brass, legs of iron and clay. You wonder, man, that's a weird looking thing. What in the world is that? Well, it was symbolic of these godless nations that would come against the Lord. But then Daniel said he saw something. He said he saw a stone that was cut without hands. He said it was a stone that came and crushed the image. Smashed the image into pieces. And and it says this, Like the chaff of the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away, that no place found them, and the stone that smote the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Isn't that amazing? Daniel just sees this vision as a prophet. It's a horrible creature. But then this stone coming and crushing it. What is Jesus saying? Jesus is saying, I'm going to crush you. I'm going to crush you. Now, he's saying that to everyone who rejects him. But specifically here, he's saying it to these religious leaders. He says, if you fall on the stone, you'll be broken. If the stone falls on you, you'll be crushed. Now, some people have tried to say, well, one is talking about a person getting saved, and the other is talking about, you you know, uh, a person who's being judged. I don't think that's the case. I think it's just a poetic language. It's, it's it's, It's saying the same thing in two different ways. I'll give you an example of that. Um, You know... If you drop a glass on a stone, the glass will break. And if you drop a stone on a glass, the glass will break, right? Same thing. And so the idea here is judgment. And Jesus says such harsh things to these men. You remember back in chapter 21, verse 13, he called them thieves. 21, verse 16 and 42, he said, you don't know your Bible. 21, 31 said the harlots, tax collectors going to go to heaven before you do. And now he says, I'm going to grind you to powder. That's tough, isn't it? That's harsh. And now all of a sudden, lights start coming on. They start seeing what Jesus is saying here. In fact, they understand that both parables, the parable of the rude son and the deceptive son, And this parable here, we're talking about them. They were the sons that had said yes with their lips to the Father, but no with their hearts. They were the wicked husbandmen. And now when the light came on and they understood that, hey, these parables are about us, he's saying, we're these evil people. Now they've got a choice. What are they going to do? Are they going to be like David when Nathan came to him with his parable? Remember that? Remember David had sinned with Bathsheba, done horrible, horrible things and tried to cover it up. And then Nathan came to him. And remember he gave him that parable about the man who had just tons and tons of sheep. And there was a guy who had one sheep. And the guy who had tons and tons of sheep went and took the one guy's sheep away from him because he wanted to make dinner for some friends. Remember that? And, and, and then he said to David, hey, well, what do you think ought to happen to this guy? David said, hey, let's kill that guy. What an evil guy. And Nathan said, well, that's you. Remember that? And then David had a choice. What would he do? Would he kill Nathan? Shut him up so nobody would find out? 
Or would he get right with God? And thank God David got right with God. Well, they're in David's shoes, aren't they? Jesus is saying, you're the man. You're the ones. What are you going to do now? They could have been like David and said, you're right. But they wouldn't be. With their own lips, they said that the wicked husbandman should be destroyed and the vineyard should be given to somebody else. When you look at verse 41, you see that. What, what did Jesus do? This is how brilliant Jesus is. Jesus makes them pronounce their own judgment. They said what should happen to themselves. They just didn't realize they were talking about themselves when they said it. They said, we should be judged. And our job should be given to someone else, like Gentiles. I mean, they even called themselves wicked men when you look at the text. Again, the brilliance of Jesus is on display here. Now, the parable is filled with symbolism. I'll try to break it down real quick and real easy for you, but the owner of the vineyard is the father. The husbandmen are the religious leaders. The servants that were sent, those are the prophets who were preaching and telling them to get the right, life right with God. The only son that was sent, that was Jesus. Killing the only son and casting him out of the vineyard, that was the crucifixion of Jesus outside the city of Jerusalem. Isn't that amazing? Jesus just gives this story and so much of it is just pop, 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 pop. It's exactly what's about to happen. And man, did they get mad. Jesus is charging these people with, with killing the prophets, with being ungodly people. Now, you know, when you, when you think about these men, these weren't men who would have said, hey, you know, um, I think Isaiah should be cut in two. These weren't men who, who were saying, I think Daniel should be thrown in the lion's den. These weren't men who were saying that Zechariah uh, should be killed between the temple and the altar. But these are guys who are pretty happy that John the Baptist is dead. They're not upset about that at all. Chapter 23, verse 33. You serpents, you generation of vipers, how can you escape the damnation of hell? Wherefore, behold, I send unto you prophets and wise men and scribes, just like the parable said, and some of them you shall kill and crucify, and some of them shall you scourge in your synagogues and persecute them from city to city, that upon you may come all the righteous blood shed upon the earth, from the blood of righteous Abel unto the blood of Zechariah, son of Barnabas, whom you slew between the temple and the altar. That's what Jesus is saying to these men. He's saying, you are evil, evil men. He's exposing them as well. They're days away from killing him. Days. Friday is just a couple of days away. They're going to kill Jesus. And what Jesus is doing is he's letting them know, hey, 
I know what you're about to do, and I'm exposing what you're about to do to me before all of these people listening. You're going to kill the Son of God. The owner of the vineyard sent his only son. And you so desperately want to hold on to a kingdom and a vineyard that isn't yours that you will kill his son because you recognize that your authority has been taken from you. I think this was an uh uh-oh moment. I think they probably just kind of looked at each other and said, he knows. They've been scheming. They've been planning. The only problem is they weren't ashamed. It didn't bother them. In fact, this event, Jesus calling them out, Jesus letting them know he knows what they're about to, they're about to do to him and letting everyone else know what they're about to do to him, it just makes them more angry. They just hate Jesus even more. Look at verse 46. But when they sought to lay hands on him, they feared the multitude because they took him uh, for a prophet. I mean, that's the only reason that they didn't kill him. They sought to lay hands on him. They, they talked about it. How do we do this? How do we kill this man right now? We, we can't wait any longer. He, he needs to be dead. And they would have killed him right there in the temple. Buddy, if they could have done it, they would have killed him right there in the temple. But ironically, the only thing that kept them from it was fear. Not fear of him, but fear of the people. Now we know they, they succeed eventually. You know, eventually Christ is crucified. And they fulfill the exact prophecy Jesus just gave. But you see, that's how sin can blind you, isn't it? That's how sin can blind you. How, how in the world could they explain Jesus knowing exactly what they were about to do? But instead of thinking to themselves, maybe He's reading our hearts. Maybe He knows our minds. Maybe He knows us more than we know ourselves. Instead of that, they just double down. But I don't want you to miss the love of God here. The love of God is on display here. Remember that patient father in the parable? He sent servant after servant after servant to collect what was due unto him, didn't he? Even after being treated despicably, he continued to sin and sin and sin until he sent his son. And that's the patience of our God, isn't it? That's the patience of our God. The patience that was shown in the parable of the two sons. When the son said, I'm not going. That was a patient father there, wasn't it? Who could have done much. If you're not going, buddy, we're going to kick you out of the family. If you're not going, we're going to do this to you. That's you. No, there was patience there. The patience of our God shouldn't be missed in these parables. God has been so patient with these people up until now. But at this point, when it comes to the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the nation of Israel and the temple and all that was going on there, His patience is exhausted. His patience has run out. And Jesus preaches with such passion and such precision here because this is their only chance out. This is it. It's it's about to happen. 
If they don't repent now, they never will. We know what happens eventually. We don't even have to read the Bible, we just read history. The Romans come in and destroy the temple. It's taken from the Jewish people. Their jobs as Pharisees and scribes and chief priests, and all that's gone. Even to this day, there's no sacrificial system set up anymore for the Jewish people. You know why? Because there's no temple. There's no high priest. Isn't that kind of odd? This religion that was so big for so many years and now there are no more sacrifices. Why? Because God took it from them. God snatched it from them. Because they rejected Christ. Now how does that relate to you and I? It relates to you and I in this. And God has a work in His vineyard right now, doesn't He? The work is in the fields, isn't it? And God, what is God doing? God is sending people into the world to preach the gospel. God is sending men and women and, and even boys and girls with the message of Christ to a lost world. The owner of the vineyard's returning. The owner of the vineyard will be here soon and he expects to find fruit when he gets here. The fruit of the Spirit in your life. Righteousness and peace and love and patience and kindness and joy. Love for God. Love. He expects to see that. And he's being very patient right now. But eventually his patience will run out. And when it does, the eastern sky will split. And Jesus will return. And what is, will be. What is, will be. Forever and ever and ever. And so this parable has application even to you and I. Not just to religious leaders, but even to us. Have we submitted to the authority of Christ and said, Lord, it's not my vineyard, it's not my way, it's your way. And are we now living our life for the glory of Christ? Have we embraced the Son of God? Have we given our hearts to Him? That's the question. Father, we love You.